Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Philip McKernan. Philip is an inspirational speaker and writer. He works with entrepreneurs and business leaders all over the world who seek clarity about their future and want to move through roadblocks. Philip is the creator and subject of the documentary, Give and Grow, which explores how the gifts of giving make us feel more worthy and alive. He's also the author of several books, including Dead Man Walking, Rich on Paper, Poor on Life, and One Last Talk, Why Your Truth Matters and How to Speak It. Philip, can you tell me a little bit about your background and some of the projects you're working on? Yeah, I mean, my background's a big story. Uh, I'm obviously Irish, as you'll gather pretty quickly. Um, I came to North America just over 10 years ago to, I suppose, to some extent, reinvent or as corny as cliches it might sound to find out who I really am and begin the journey of doing the work I'm here to do. Um, what I'm working on at the moment is a, a new book, um, which is just out called One Last Talk. And there's a whole concept behind that, which I won't get into huge detail. But basically, it's if you've got 15 minutes or less to stand on a stage and share your one last talk with the world, what would it be? Uh, I've done a documentary in the last couple of years called Give and Grow. Um, I run retreats and experiences for leaders and entrepreneurs all over the world. And uh, I'm just in the middle of recording my own first uh, my first podcast as well called One Last Talk. So quite a few different things going on, but that's the way I like it. That's awesome. What inspired you to get into the work that you do? Pain. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I'm not sure it was a, a, you know, inspiration as such. I mean, I think I always deep down knew that this is what I was meant to do. Um, I used to play the game that a lot of people play saying, oh, well, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up and I don't know what my passion really is. So therefore, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And the truth was that that's, that was a bit of a lie. I, I kind of deep down knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know exactly how to execute it. And I think um, I left it too long to some extent, even though I can sit here and rationalize and justify it was the perfect timing. I stayed in a, in a job. I stayed in a business thereafter. Um, I was chasing money to give myself freedom to go and do then what I really wanted to do. And all the time um, I was ignoring the very thing that I, again, I didn't know exactly how to do it, but I knew what I wanted to do and that was impacting people. And it got to a point where the pain just outweighed the so-called quote-unquote comfort I thought I had. And then I started to actually execute. And then it went from there and uh, grew into what it is today. <clears throat> was there a specific moment where that was sort of a tipping point for you as you made this transition? Yeah, well, as it relates to the pain, yes. Um, um, I mean, I'd love to, t I mean, I was coaching, I used to meet people in a pub in Ireland without alcohol, I might add, and we'd have a cup of tea and we'd sit upstairs in this little landing area on the stairs because I couldn't afford a meeting room many years ago. So as much as the results from the clients and the coaching I used to do and everything else was great, it still wasn't enough to get me over the hurdle of a lack of self-belief this sense that I'm not good enough to do it and I'm not qualified because I didn't finish. Uh, I didn't go to high. Well, I just barely scraped through high school, but I didn't go to college because I was dyslexic um, as severely and they didn't understand it at that time. Um, but ultimately, I remember sitting in my kitchen in my parents' kitchen in Dublin or just outside of Dublin um, about I, I'm just guessing seven years, eight years ago. And uh, or probably longer, actually. And um, my wife looking at me and saying, we've got $200 in the bank account. This is simply not working. 
And um, I remember just looking, I was saying, fuck it, I'm going to I'm going to do this coaching thing. And I sent an email out. It was actually longer. It was about uh, 11 years ago. And I sent an email out to our massive email list, which was probably about 25 people. And um, I got my first client who came back and said about effing time. Uh, it was a three words. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, the minute I met you, I knew you this is what you were meant to do. I'll be your first client. And I said, you don't know how much it is. He says, I don't care. Wow. Out of curiosity, how much was it? At that time, the very first time I took on private coaching was for six months. I believe it was somewhere around 5,000 Canadian dollars at that time. And he signed up on the spot without even blinking. And that was the beginning. And what was, I mean, you've, you've begun to get into it, but I want you to talk a little bit about more about that process, right? So what was the process that allowed you to continue to turn this into a career? I think it's less of a process. Uh, maybe you might want to just maybe if you, if you feel free to you know ask me maybe a different question or even dig into that one. I think it was less of a pro process and my work is less than a process than more of a kind of a sense of kind of feeling my way through it, a sense of very deep intuition that was always there that I had. I just didn't trust it. Um, and I find that the more I lean into that intuition, that the more I can guide people. So my work is very personal. So even if I do a retreat, and 20 or 30 people come to different parts of the world with me, um, there, is a, there is a framework around it and there, there, is a, there is a bit of a guiding guidepost, but ultimately the work itself is determined by where the clients or the individuals in the room are and where they need to go. And that will determine where, where the conversation is led. Yeah, I mean, process might not be the right word. What I'm interested in is the exploration of how you continue to evolve in to this. And I'm starting to understand some insights about how you work. And so maybe I'll, sh I'll shift directions a little bit. What type of problems do or, or challenges or what types of things come up in your workshops? Well, there's two, there's, there's two types. There's the stuff that people think are the problem. Um, so Indiana Jones said, what is it? I think he said something like X never marks the spot. And I think that's very true in many respects when it comes to people's challenges. So they come in saying they want to grow their business. They come in saying they want to realign and they want to get back that spark they had. They come in wanting to align to more meaningful work. They come in because they've got some sense that they're out of they're out of alignment somewhere. They just don't know how to pinpoint it. And they're all what I would call the surface symptoms, if you like. But ultimately, when you dig deeper down, you know, you've got people who don't really believe in themselves. They've got low self-worth, but they've never dealt with it. They've got um, emotions such as dominant mo emotions, such as anger that they've never really dealt with. They've got um, they're lonely. Um, you know, they 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 don't like who they are. Um, they've, they haven't processed certain elements of their life and they keep telling me and themselves that actually they've dealt with that before. They've done counseling around that. And it's not until we deal with some of those things, does the clarity emerge, the alignment in terms of who they are and what they need to do. So what they come in for and what they end up landing on often, not always, but often is two different things. I want to go through some of these because they're probably things that people who are listening to might be able to relate to, right? So your intuition tells them, tells you that they have low self-esteem. How do you approach that? 
I basically simply get them to the point where if that is their truth, and that could be, I think it's a part of everybody's truth. I don't know anybody that, that can't improve their self-worth or their, or their self-esteem at some level, as, but some are, are just in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a worse state than others. So the very first place, like working with an alcoholic, is, is you've got to get them to realize that it is a problem. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what work you do, what books they read, what programs they go to it's never going to change until they start to realize that actually they do have a self-worth challenge and therefore they understand how it has. So in other words, why is it the case, that the case? Because my natural assumption all the time is you weren't born like that. My natural assumption is the clarity that you seek you already have. My natural assumption is you already have peace of mind. If you don't, we need to understand why you don't. So number one is realizing the problem. Number two is starting to understand how it happened. Like, why, where does it come from? Where did you, along your journey, get to a point where your self-esteem was started? Where did you disrespect yourself or where were you disrespected to get to that level? Start to unpack that stuff. Then, and only then, do we start to make adjustments in life to, um, I suppose, correct and course correct so these things don't reemerge. But we have to deal with the pattern. Most people out there that are counseling or coaching or whatever it happens to be is they're dealing with they're dealing with the the, the 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 problem, but they're not getting right down to the core of the of the underlying pattern. So therefore, history continually repeats itself. I had a coaching client yesterday that reached out to me after five years. He never dealt with the 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 core issue. He's left his business. He thought that was the problem. He left his wife. He thought that was the problem, and he's back in the same pattern again, where he's unhappy because he's unwilling to do the deeper, richer work that'll support him moving forward. Is there a way someone who's listening to this can figure out what the, their core issues are on their own? Or is this something that they have to do in with someone else or in a group environment? How do you recommend somebody approach that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is where I jump in and say everyone should be in a group because that's what I do. Everyone should get coaching because that's what I do. But, you know, not necessarily. I think all we all deep down know or have an intuitive sense of what our what our challenges are. A lot of very busy people, um, you know, are are hiding from that because busyness is, uh, in some people's minds, the antidote to to pain. Um, but the reality is, it's just prolonging the issues. So I believe that we can get in touch with some of the challenges. I meet people all the time that go, Yeah, yeah, I realized I had low self worth, so I, I I read all these books, or I realized I was carrying a lot of anger, so I read all these books. And they're able to cite all the language, all of the terminologies, all of these incredible quotes. In other words, they have a great intellectual understanding of the challenge, but they haven't actually done the work. It's like a lot of speakers I see today who are now using vulnerability as a tool because it's kind of cool and sexy to be vulnerable on stage all of a sudden. But you can tell they haven't done the actual work. I'm not saying all of them, but some of them. So I do believe that you can start to identify, you can lean into the conversation. I do not believe at all that we can get to the core unless we have somebody externally looking at and the, the the corny analogy people use is a golf swing you can't analyze your own golf swing you can't assess where you're making the mistakes more often than not and therefore you need somebody who's sitting outside of you who is connected and cares but disconnected from the outcome who cares enough that they can call you on your own bullshit. That brought up a couple different questions, but I want to go through maybe another one of these. So you talked about delving into why, uh, then maybe exploring how it happened and and maybe where somebody disrespected themselves as an, as an example. And then the third is is begin to course correct. And so 
like I was in a, um, a men's group yesterday. One of the guys said, I'm really angry. And that was one of the things that you mentioned that comes up a lot. If somebody says that they're really angry, do you follow a similar, similar, I'm going to go now, I'm going to use the word process, similar process with anger as you did with low self-esteem or is it, do you approach it a different way? Uh, I think there is. I mean, I think under, under under the surface, there's much more of a process going on all the time for me. I'm just not very conscious of it. So to me, it's very intuitive. But I think ultimately, there probably is a similar pattern and approach on a, on a consistent and continual basis. So if somebody's very angry, um, obviously, a very simple question is, well, why, why are you angry? And most likely, they will bring up something in the current moment. They'll bring up something that happened to them that day. They'll bring up something that's happening to them around the time frame that they're sitting in that room. So in other words, my, my, my mom is pissing me off. My girlfriend's pissing me off. Uh, the guy cut me off the traffic. But what you'll find is if you track the anger back, it is what, what's triggered it is what's currently going on. But the anger itself is old. So somebody, when I talk about anger, which is not a sexy, cool conversation, uh, it's not a societally very deeply accepted conversation. When I talk about anger, people go, oh, yeah, 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 actually, you know, it's interesting you bring up anger. My friend John, God, he's so angry. He should really be here today. But me, I'm not angry at all. And what you'll find is they are angry. They're, they're really angry. They're just unaware of it. And then you ask them, when was the last time you got angry? And they go, oh, I can't remember. And I say, oh, actually, there was one time. Uh, about two years ago, I lost my shit because this guy cut me off in traffic in New York or Boston or wherever it was. And I just lost my shit. Now, that would ju that just came out. I mean, that's not me. That just came out. And I go, where did it come out of your ass or come out of your pocket? It came out of you. So the anger is there. It's often dormant. And what it does is it creeps out in passive aggressive ways. It creeps out. And if, think about it in terms of loneliness. Think about anger as it relates to relationships. And this is something that most people look at me as if I've got seven heads initially until they start to really unpack this reality. Look at our friend, the Hulk. Now, I've done a lot of podcast interviews and I've never brought this analogy up, but I, I brought it up at a recent workshop. What does our friend the Hulk do? Not the most inspirational example. I, I get it, but bear with me. What does he do? Well, first of all, most people say he turns green, explodes out of his clothes, loses his shit and beats, bashes stuff up. Before that, well, before that, he gets angry. Before that, he's being stirred up. Before that, before they keep going all the way back. What he does is isolates himself. What he does is he isolates himself from society because he wants to protect the people around him. He doesn't want to be angry and therefore he doesn't want to hurt people. And I know this is a silly Hollywood example and a Marvel cartoon, I believe, example. However, there are a similar principle here. Often people are saying they want to be in a relationship. They want to have intimacy. They want to have great friends. But I have found that actually many people say they want that intellectually, but emotionally they don't feel deserving of that. They don't feel that they, they should have that and they don't feel good enough to have wonderful people in their lives because they've got all of this on, I suppose, unprocessed emotions. And therefore what they do is they isolate themselves from humanity. And yet intellectually they have the perfect man or woman on their vision board, but ultimately we give ourselves what we feel we deserve. So sometimes they remove themselves from that situation. You mentioned fully processing one's emotions a couple of different times. And so I'm curious because you've begun to walk us through um, what, what you do, but what does a group session look like for you? Like when you, when somebody comes into one of your group environments, like what is the first thing that happened? What is the second thing that happened? What's the third thing that happens? And, and, 
what comes up? What is the consequences of sort of this process? And what does it mean end up meaning to the clients, the work? It's all different across the board, depending on the experience. So I'll, I'll just focus on one experience. So I bring a group of people to Ireland every year and have done for the last eight years. And what we do there is we go into your past, we look at your present, and then we start to um, play with what the future may look like, but not in terms of the goals and aspirations and the extrinsic things you want to bring into your life. It's really about when we go into the future, it's like, who do you want to be? How do you want to feel in the future? So it's very, very, very deeply connected at a deeper emotional level. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then what you need to do in order to feel like that then starts to emerge from that. And that's the problem with traditional goal setting. A lot of people set goals, but they're not necessarily connected to who they are. So we go back into your past. We do deep dive into your past, into your personal narrative, but more importantly, into your truth. So a lot of people think that their stories were, I went to school, I, I went to college, um, I, I, I work in wherever, and um, and, I, and my and my girlfriend's Jenny, and 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 they think that's their story, but that's actually that's 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 a part of their story. But I want to go into their into their in their into their truth, into a deep dive into their truth. So they start to, so I believe that the past has created the present, and the present is creating the future. In other words, everything we are today is as a result of the decisions that we've made and the decisions we have not made in our lives, the people we've met, the environments in which we've been brought up in. And when we want to change our lives, most people focus on the future. I want to change this. I'm going to be that. I want to create this and I want to buy that. And my belief is people who only look forward are completely blind. They're blind beyond blind's belief. Like when you go back into your past, you'll understand who you are intellectually and emotionally at a level. As long as you do a deep dive and it's supported and you're challenged and people don't just accept the initial answer you come up with. Therefore, you'll understand at a really deep level. I've never worked with anybody who has gone through this particular process with me who hasn't been blown open by the realization and joining the dots or bridging between the past and the present and saying, oh my God, that's why I don't like, I don't have money because I don't fucking like it. That's why I'm single. It's not because I'm living in the wrong part of the United States of the world. It's not because I live in a cave in Afghanistan and I, I can't, I have no internet connection. And I can't get on some dating app. I'm single because at some level, I believe that that's what I'm destined for. I don't want a woman in my life because that equals pain when I re remember my parents' relationships. These things come up for them. Then they are sitting there with the present and they start to take ownership for who they are in a way they've never done before. And then we can truly pivot our lives, being aware of those patterns as opposed to blindly moving into the future, thinking that everything's going to be okay if I achieve X, Y, and Z. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, statistically, scientifically now proven, they say 90% of people die with major life regrets. And, and I love my entrepreneurial clients who go, oh, yeah, that's because they didn't become entrepreneurs. You think because you're an entrepreneur that you're, you're, you're some way, shape or form protected from this reality. This is a human statistic, 90 plus percent of people. So we're, we're doing something radically wrong here. And all of the, the mindset stuff and the goal setting and all, a lot of this stuff, it, there has to be something else missing because honestly, left to our own devices, we're not doing a great job. When you look at depression and suicide and divorce, it is rampant. So there's something else missing along in this process. And I think a lot of it is we don't go back into our past and understand who we really are at our core, our identities, understand our gifts versus our talents. We're, we're not making an impact in the world in some cases. And we're too busy trying to create 
a legacy in the future as opposed to living our legacy every single day now. Do you feel like you've gone through this process? No, I'm, I'm never, I'll never gone through any process. I will be going through a process for the rest of my life. I will be at the step two or three or four. The biggest mistake I, may, I see in the world today is people telling me how self-aware they are. I was on a podcast about a year ago and somebody asked me, how did you become so authentic? And I went, you're making an assumption I am. And it kind of messed up the interview because this was her opening question. And I wasn't trying to catch her out. I, and she says, are you not? And I said, I'm more authentic than I used to be, but I'm not even close to where I want to be. The biggest mistake, I, and I was, on, I was on Facebook recently and somebody put a post out, how emotionally connected are you to your children on a scale of one to 10? And all these people going 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And I just made a comment and I said, well, my concern with 10 is then basically out of 10, we're saying we're perfect and therefore there's no room for growth. And all these really defensive, angry people came in and started attacking my comment. And one woman said, I'm 10 out of 10 with all my five children. Now, I've never met a woman Never mind, like a human in my life that is 10 out of 10 with their children. But we tell ourselves these stories. So to me, I, am, I, I, I have, I have I've, I've attacked many of these conversations. I am through or moving through a process, but I have never, I've, I have not gone through the process. I have so much to go. What I'm curious and where I was going with this is that oftentimes I feel like, especially when you're doing deep, some of this deeper emotional work, it's part of our own sort of experiences and life story or narrative or process. I mean, you can switch out the language, like words are just symbols and, and we try to use them to communicate the essence of a thing. But what I'm curious is how your backstory or your own struggles or your own challenges or even successes, whatever, how your human experience has affected your work or influenced your work? Absolutely, 100%. I think there's two ways to make an impact in this world. One, you can take something like, you know, build an orphanage, for example, which I've actually done. And I think you get a lot of fulfillment from that to some extent, but it's something that doesn't necessarily deeply relate to you because with respect, I wasn't orphaned and I didn't have that experience. However, when I connect my own personal story, my own personal pain and impact, and I combine those two together, and I help the people that I, I, I help the people in a way I suppose I wish I was helped myself. Then what ap happens is you get absolute complete alignment. And, 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 and that's why in the deepest, darkest days that I have and days where I wake up some days and I go, holy crap, the world doesn't want me. The world doesn't need my message. In fact, I don't think I should be doing this. And I doubt I go to a deeper place and I remember the pain that I experienced and then remember the pain that I continue to experience at one level. And what it does is it ignites me. And I think that's the challenge for so many people who want to make an impact is they're not connecting the impact to their own personal pain or personal narrative. And therefore, it, they, they don't get the fulfillment and then they run out of juice. They run out of passion. They run out of steam and they go, oh, yeah, that wasn't my passion. I have to do something else now because it's not connected to who they are. Early on, you talked about how you got into what you're doing and you mentioned that um, it was what you really wanted to do and you fought against yourself. but I'm assuming the idea of of getting into sort of transformation or or deep work, like th that wasn't just sort of something on a hill that there there was some of this that you had already been exploring and you were maybe you were beginning to explore this with other people. Is that a true statement? And if not, tell me it isn't. That's fine. Um, 
But if it is, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what were some of those things that you you were working through beyond um, maybe just like self-doubt with what you're doing now? Well, I think I was, there's, there's a number of things. Number one is that I, I never thought I wanted to be a coach or a you know, personal growth guy or whatever you want to call me. I didn't have any of that kind of conscious thoughts. I think as I began to go, I, I mean, I, I did therapy for the first time many, many years ago in Ireland, and I didn't think I needed it. I was just doing it to kind of almost check it out to see what it was like. And I'll never forget uncovering how angry, lonely, and sad I was all at the same time. And it scared the shit out of me. And I had the courage to continue to go through it. And I started to understand a lot of who I was. And and I think for most people is a lot of us want to find our passions. We want to know what we want to do when we grow up. But very few of us actually start to really understand and explore who we are at the core, which is the work I did and continue to do. What emerged from that was not the work that I want to do. It's almost like I'm on this planet to do this work. It's almost not a choice. Now, when people, when I say that to people, people go, God, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do something that's not a choice. Of course it's a choice, but it doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like I am here to do this. This is what I've been destined to do, if that makes any sense. In other words, my gift is finding the gift in other people and helping them understand it intellectually, emotionally, and start to execute it in the world. I don't feel this is my work, this body of work. I feel like it's coming through me at some level, yet I'm not religious in any shape or form, but I'm deeply spiritual. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I'm certainly not trying to avoid it, but that's the best I have right now. I want to talk a little about therapy because there's so much stigma around mental health. What made you conscious enough to, or maybe it wasn't conscious, maybe someone's like, you should do this. What made you conscious enough or what caused you to actually walk into that, set that appointment and walk in the office, sit down and and begin to open up about around some of the things that were you were feeling or were happening to you? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think at the time I rationalized and justified that I met this guy, he seemed like a nice guy. So I was kind of giving him a shot and just seeing what this whole therapy, quote unquote, thing was like. That was the macho kind of cool, um, protective story I was telling myself. But the reality is I knew there was something wrong. I knew there was something off. I knew there was something not broken necessarily, even though I probably at the time felt that I was broken. I mean, that's another thing, and I don't want to deviate from me right now, but a lot of people actually walk this earth feeling they're broken, and therefore no one can help them. And then what people do is, oh, well, I didn't like that therapist. I didn't, any therapist is a dead therapist is better than no therapist at all. And I realized that actually I'm just being selfish. I'm walking around with a gift and an ability to connect with other people and make an impact in the world, whether it's one person or a million people. And by me not going, I have a responsibility to, to begin to unravel and unpack some of my own shit, which all of us have, um, so I can show up better for the world. So at some level, I think it was this just being aware that there was something off, not knowing what it was. Like I asked somebody recently, he said, why, why haven't you not reached out for help? And I'm not even talking about a professional capacity, like as a friend. And he goes, well, I don't know what help I'm asking for. And 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 like, I was just thought of that. Like, how incredibly weird and strange and and vulnerable and beautiful that that statement is that we don't even ask for help as human beings unless we can understand it ourselves the reason we should ask for help or go to therapy is to help us unpack and understand what it is we're feeling even though we cannot understand it you don't wait to go to therapy uh, until you figure out your problem and then go to a therapist and say here's the problem and you help me fix it Go to therapy so they can, and even if you go to therapy and they tell you everything is awesome, you're the most incredible person. In fact, you are perfect. 
brilliant. Then you walk away saying, you know what, honestly, I'm right. Therapy is bullshit. It's a waste of money. Great. And then you know. But like, I would challenge anybody. I think we have a moral obligation as human beings as long as we walk out onto the streets. If we choose to bring animals or kids or anything into this world, we have a moral obligation to work on our stuff because if we don't, we're simply repackaging and handing it on to the next generation. Yeah, and not just the next generation, everyone around us, right? Our, our relations, the, I mean, it affects our work, it affects our ability to enjoy life, it affects the way we feel. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. What, what type of, like, after going through that process, how did it affect you? How did it change you? I think it scared the crap out of me initially, I think, because I, I thought I was okay. It was like a Jerry Maguire moment, and I walked in thinking, you're not going to make me cry, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say, the day I walked into the therapist's room, there was two chairs and one chair below it or beside it had this massive, like a three, almost like a three layer box of Kleenex. I, I don't know where the hell he got it from, but it was enormous. And I, in my naive stupidity thought, oh, he must have a really bad cough or a cold or sniffles. So I sat in the other chair and he comes in, he says, sorry, that's my chair. And I remember looking down at this Kleenex and looking at this guy thinking, there's no way you're gonna make me cry. And of course, a minute and a half, two minutes in, I'm bawling my eyes out. And then before I know what he says, right, that's our hour off. And I'm thinking, screw that. I'm only starting. So I, I hadn't even started to unpack. And this is the cool guy that was walking in thinking, I've got my shit together. I'm going to walk in and prove to this therapist myself in the world that I don't need it. In fact, you know, I think I'm I'm more than perfect type of thing. And this is about, I, I'm guessing this is about 12 years ago. And it frightened me because I realized that actually I wasn't in control. I realized that I was angry. I realized that I was sad. I realized I had no idea who I was at my core, even though that didn't make sense to me. I realized how way off I was. But amongst all of those negative emotions, there was a spark of, hey, buddy, you're doing something about it. You're not sitting in a corner moaning and bitching about it. You're actually doing something about it. And you know what? That's pretty cool. And there was the beginning and the opening of a bit of compassion, which I'd never experienced in my life. And most people never experience in their life. Self-compassion, not feeling sorry for myself, big difference, self-compassion and a letting go of all of the pains and, and an acceptance of the parts of myself I didn't like. And that was the beginning. And, and, and I, I, I haven't been in therapy for quite some time, but I would probably go back to therapy every every. Every couple of years, I just go back for six or seven sessions when I just feel intuitively I need to do it. Just to go back and check in, I think it's incredibly important. I started to laugh as you opened up because I, the first time I ever, I was in college and I was about to drop out of school because I was running out of money and I was depressed and didn't realize I was depressed and the teacher figured it out and pulled me out of class who had had me for a few different semesters. And she's like, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. You're the brightest student I've ever had. And this semester you're just like in a different place and I'm like I read the text I don't understand it I can't process the ideas I, and she's like I think you're depressed I, I want you to go see, see a psychologist and I'd never seen a, a psychologist so I went to the school psychologist and I walked into her office and in the first like minute and a half two minutes I started crying I cried the entire time <laughs> so, I, there you go. But, but I felt honestly it was very helpful like that yeah. that release was just incredibly helpful and I didn't even know that I needed it but once I walked into that office and I sat down, those tears started running down my face. <laughs> um, you talked a little bit about compassion. Can you expand on what that means to you? Because I, I think a lot of guys get confused with it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I best, I try to 
relate things through the lens of story um, as best I can. I think the only one that's coming up for me right now is the gentleman I worked with a couple of years ago in Toronto. And we're at a workshop and I could just look at him and I could see he had kind of checked out. And I said, hey, what's what's going on? He goes, no, I'm here. I'm good. I said, no, you're not. You haven't been here all day. What's happening? And he said, well, you know, and he had this third party question thing. If I had a, if I had a friend that was this and I said, we're not, I'm not going to play those games. And I said, he said, okay, where do I start? I said, tell me about your life. And he said, my biggest problem is I procrastinate. I have these great ideas, but I don't fall through. I said, cool. I said, tell me about your life. And he said, well, you know, black kid, white neighborhood, you know what it's like. And I said, no, I'm not black. And uh, I said, you know, I'm Irish and I, I don't know what that's like. And he started to tell me about his upbringing and people, even he was looking at him, what's this got to do with my life today? Well, the answer to that question is everything. Everything, what you've been through is determined who you are now. And who you are today is like he was just beating the shit out of himself and beating himself up because he wasn't following through and executing on all these things he said he wanted to do. So he's just beating the shit out of himself with a lot of guys in particular and women do to motivate themselves. And that's a negative, negative drive. It'll get you It'll get you going, it'll get you past the beginning line, but it'll never get you to where you want to go. Or when you get there, you'll have a feeling of a lack of fulfillment. And when 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 we try to work with people to soften those edges, they, they're afraid that their drive will diminish and it's complete bullshit. But anyway, back to our friend. And I just said to him, I said, how bad was it? He said, it got to a point where I used to wear white powder on my face to fit in in the neighborhood. And I was being an asshole on purpose. And I said, what? Wednesdays, 2 p.m. to 3, or Thursdays at 4 to 5, he said, no, every day. And I could see it, it was every day. And I said, okay, and I did something I've never done before in a, in a workshop, I've, I've done stuff similar to this in a, in a bigger environment or a deeper environment. I took a chair over and I put the chair in front of him and I said, you're 10 years old, you've got white powder in your face, you're looking at yourself right now, what would you like to say to that young child? And rather than, hey buddy, you know what, you're doing the best you can. Hey, buddy, you're okay. You don't need white powder in your face. Stand tall and be a proud black man in this white neighborhood. Whatever, any type of compassion, any type of acceptance and self-love and support. But the opposite came out. It was, look at you. You're fucking weak. Look at you. Get off. Look at you. You can't even stand up for yourself. You have to wear. You're weak and you're this. And it was just this litany of obnoxious, cruel self-talk towards himself. And I said to him, there's your problem. I said, until you can look at that little kid with a degree of compassion and self-acceptance and love, there's going to be a huge part of you contained within yourself that you hate. And every day when you step out of bed, you can have the best vision boards in the world, but every step you take, you're going to seek to validate daily how you feel about yourself. So you can say you want X, but you're always going to give yourself Y. And when you get X, you're going to screw it up and you're going to sabotage it because deep down you hate who you are. That's the best example I have of, of compassion or a lack of compassion. So where, do, where does he go next in that narrative or in that story? Well, like? the, the opportunity for him is to realize that, um, is, is to draw, begin to draw the parallel and realize that actually what's going on for him today is challenges today aren't, like in a hundred percent related to that, but they're significantly related to that. And when we start to understand that how we hold ourselves and view ourselves in this world has a huge impact in the results that we're going to get, even just beginning to play with that idea and they start to own that. But the most important thing is to feel the pain that he's actually in. So many of us are designed to, um, if I was sitting in front of you at a studio right now and I took a cup 
or I took my microphone, I threw it at you, you you'd put your hands up, or you'd drop your head, you'd duck, or you know, whatever. In other words, you would you would try to protect yourself. So as humans today, we are so we are so compelled to not feel pain that we will do everything. And one of the greatest ways to get somebody motivated or to move is to feel and to land and to sit in the shit that they're in. And the analogy, which has been around forever, the dog comes up onto the, the porch and there's two guys sitting there having a beer. One's a visitor and he curls up and he lies on an exposed nail. And the visitor says, hey, buddy, uh, your dog's on a nail. He goes, yeah, I know. And he keeps sipping his beer and he goes, hey, he's on a nail. And he says, yeah, he'll move. And the guy says, when? He says, well, when the pain is bad enough. So there's something beautiful about pain. It wasn't until I sat in the pain of how out of alignment in my life I was, did I actually make a change. And he needs to sit with the uncomfortableness of the pain as opposed to doing what he's been doing for 20 years. And that is just get busy again, building the next business, assuming that'll make him happy. I mean, it's a beautiful story. And it made me curious. I mean, you've probably come across a lot of impactful moments in your career or, or moments with people where they went through the, these, whether it's transformations or moments of discovery or moments of discovery and then transformations. Like, What are some of the experiences that most stand out to you from your work? I had one recently, um, it just a, a surge of emotion came through me because I know this person personally and they came to an event with me and up to this point they were determined never to bring a child into this world and they told themselves the story that actually they didn't want to be a parent and they wanted to have freedom and all the other stuff that um, people often tell themselves as a reason not to bring children into this world and by the way, very quickly, I'm not a parent who believes everyone should have children. If you don't want to have kids, that's your choice. I trust it. I believe in it. However, make sure that you're making the choice from uh, the right place. In other words, that you have all of the information at hand. It's not a reaction. So ultimately, when you understand this woman's past and the pain that she went through and the abuse that she experienced, without getting into the detail of it, you 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 understand she's afraid to bring a child into this world because she is afraid that she will not be good enough as a mother to look after and protect this child. And two is she does not want to bring somebody into this world that would ever get to experience the pain that she herself experienced. So really, it wasn't it wasn't a place of real authentic truth. It was it was based out of fear. And we went through this experience in Ireland and we, we had this week and it's, and it's a deep, deep unapologetic dive into our lives and into beyond the stories we tell ourselves into our truth. And I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. The day that this woman said, um, today was a, an amazing day. She said, for the first time ever, I pictured myself as a mother and I think I want to have a child. Now that might mean a lot to everybody else listening to this. <clears throat> but because I know her and because I know her husband and because I've known them for a few years, that is enormous. It is game changing for them. And she's also going to be an amazing mother and he's going to be an amazing dad. So that that's just one that came up. I haven't shared that before, obviously, um, and I didn't expect to share it, but that's just one example and I can give you many, but that's just one. And by the way, that's not me. Just, just, so I just want to be really clear on this. People often say, oh my God, you're amazing. You're this. I created the environment for that conversation, that reality, that truth, whatever, but that is her. That is 100% her, her courage, her willingness to step in and do the work that scared the shit out of her and and therefore getting a desired or a different result than she imagined. Dating coach Chris Luna here. 
This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I mean, and that's an important thing for people to understand, right? That especially with transformational work, that you're you're essentially the guide or or the person who's leading. It's the guide. When I'm when I'm doing our workshops, I'm just the guide, and and the work is done inside. It's done within the human being, and I think that's a that's an amazing story. I I mean, it's a a massive massive choice to go from or massive change to go from I don't want to bring a human being into this world to I do and knowing all the traumas and vulnerabilities and fears and dangers and that a person may have come through or gone through during the course of their life and then having the optimism that you can bring somebody to the world and, and shepherd them through those and things are going to be okay because they're going to experience their own. I mean, it is, it's an absolutely beautiful story. Um, I want to get a little bit into your books. First, Dead Man Walking. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote that book? Yeah, that's, that's speaking to what I believe is the greatest human challenge today, and that is the amount of people that are just living in their heads. Um, living from a very intellectual, um, you know, standpoint and spending a lot of their time in their heads. And I think um, without getting too deep into this, uh, we do that because we want to protect ourselves. We do that. We, we That's learned. We, we weren't, weren't born to be living in our heads. And um, it's, it's very much a learned behavior. It's a protective thing. And um, it, it society sets us up to to spend more time living in our heads as it does intuitively um, the difference is i decide i describe it is is mindset versus soul set i'm not asking us to all get out of our heads and stop using our brains and our minds and just live in this fluffy cool place called our soul but i am asking people to lean a little bit more into that place and follow themselves from more of an intuitive place both in business and in our personal lives i had dinner with a friend of mine she's an absolutely brilliant girl she has a law degree from columbia university in new york and an mba from harvard and and some other like really crazy accolades and um we were talking and about some some blocks that she has over dinner and she was getting she was intellectualizing everything and i could just feel how disconnected she was from her body and her intuition and i feel like that's sort of what you're talking about am i in the right 
in the right yeah, space. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the one thing I want to be really careful is that people, this is, I'm not talking about the solution here being either yoga or meditation. I don't believe either of them are a solution. And, and I, by the way, some of the angriest people I've met are actually yoga teachers, um, but they're using yoga and meditation as a way to suppress or manage their anger as opposed to feeling their way through it. I'm not suggesting everybody is, and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do meditation or yoga. I think they're great things to enhance our journey on this earth, but they should not be designed to manage uh, emotion. Um, and I know a lot of people will hate that comment and they'll get angry, et cetera, but that's, that's, that's what I've witnessed over these many years of doing this. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I know somebody who said to me recently, he said, I just don't understand what's going on. I don't need to. I'm making decisions in my business from a more intuitive place. He said, I literally looked at a business deal recently that was worth millions of dollars either way in his business. And while all the numbers made sense, his COO was saying, um, do this deal, his CFO was saying, do this deal. And he just said, I just don't feel it. And he said, I never would have done that before. And he said, it turned out to be the best decision, him not doing this deal, that one of the businesses ever done. So this is not just, and even, if, and, and again, this is silly, a little example, but let's just try and bring it back to say relationships, for example. Um, you know, you can you can have a vision board of 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 the most beautiful woman or the beautiful most beautiful man that you want to bring into your life. You can describe them in great detail, and I have many stories of the clients who've tried to do this. And you can be staring at the door, sitting in the bar, and you can be staring at that, waiting for that person to come in. And the minute they come in, you're going to go and try and talk to them or buy them a drink or ask them out on a date. And the guy or the girl serving you the drink, who's just placed the gin and tonic on, on the table, could actually be the best person in the world for you. But you're too busy looking for the thing that you think makes the most sense, that you miss everything on the peripheral in life, the things that don't necessarily make logical sense are often the best things for us. Is paying attention to how you feel and your intuition. It's funny, in the conversation with her, and she's an amazing woman, but she just, she felt blocked and couldn't figure it out. And as we talked, she just kept rationalizing things. And, and it was really interesting to talk through some of the things that she was doing in her life and as a form of suppression. And things as simple as like reading Harry Potter. And I said, as we talked through it, I'm like, I, I think you're doing that to avoid these deeper things. Those are great books, but in your particular case, and I'm not saying you shouldn't read them, but, but in your particular case, I feel like you're doing these things um, in order to suppress it. And I've done the same thing. I mean, I there's periods where I was going through challenges in my life, had a lot of emotional conflict, and I just like binged out on a bunch of movies. Right. Um, or I did something else. I just got off the phone with a guy who said that when he was going through very deep emotional turmoil in his life, he was running long distance, distance running. He was, he had a goal of trying to run across every country in the world. And, but part of that early on was a form of suppression. And, uh, this manifests in all kinds of different ways. Other people with drugs and alcohol or violence or what, what I mean, there's all kinds of different ways this manifests, but, um, I, I think that's a great example to use of just like how we intellectualize things and put them on vision boards or write them in goals and break them down without paying attention to our feelings and our intuition and, and letting them guide us to the things that deeper down we know we really want. I, I know success comes to play. And I mean, on the subject of dead man walking, people oftentimes get trapped in their own success. I had a conversation yesterday with a guy who he's like, I was a lawyer. I was making a lot of money. I just like, I wasn't. I had fallen into the, to like a lot of these standards for what it means to be successful. Um, but he just, he was like, I'm unhappy. So what I'm curious is if you could talk a little bit about how success can, can trap us and then maybe what are some of the things that we can do to try to get out of that? If we feel like 
we are trapped and we've we've got to this place that we our soul or intuition tells us we really don't want to be yeah i mean i you know, it's funny, you know, you, you know, you, you know, I've, I would have just answered that question before. And it's funny how I'm evolving in different ways and success trapping us or the trapment of success or whatever. I, I just I'm, I'm beginning to not buy that one anymore. I think it's just another way, another excuse for us to use. And again, people may not like this, but for us just not to do the things that we're meant to do and to show up in the world in a way that we're meant to do. Um, you know, people use their children as a, as a reason or an excuse. You know, workaholics that I work with uh, are meet initially. They go, well, I'm doing this for my kids. I said, no, you're not doing this for your kids. You're doing this for yourself. You're doing this because you're trying to hide and you're scared shitless to do what you know you need to do deep down because you know what? Failing at something that you're not really connected to is okay. That's acceptable subconsciously. But imagine beginning to uncover or even going after the thing you're meant to do. Imagine discovering that. Like, everyone, you know, so many people say they want to find out what their passion is. They want to find out what they want to do to grow up. I guarantee every time I get really super close or I help someone to get really super close to their truth, they start to fight. They start to fight with me they start to really get scared because they don't want to uncover their passion. Sometimes we don't want love. Sometimes we don't want amazing friends because it actually scares the crap out of us. So with respect, I'm not trying to challenge you, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost challenging this, you know, this notion that people say, you know, um, I'm so successful and I'm trapped by my own success. I don't believe that. I think they've created this success so they don't have to do something else. I think that's part of the problem. I was, I did the same thing. I mean, I did exactly the same thing. I've never realized until just now. I did exactly the same thing. On paper, I was building a business with my brother. It was successful in so many ways. I was making good money. I was building equity. I was in the press. I had it all figured out looking in from the outside. And I was hiding every one of those successes. Everyone that was actually me hiding from my own individual truth. And the more complex that became, the more rationalized or the more rational uh, rational I could become and the more justification I had to not make a change because if you think about it what if I really really uncover what I'm here to do what if I really get in touch with what my truth is what if I know what my passion is oh my god the fear of failing doing what we're meant to do outweighs any other fear any human being has ever carried even death yeah I mean it's it's, it's a very interesting perspective it's something that I want to think more on no, no, no. One thing I would love to add, if you don't mind, very quickly, is the one thing where I do see it coming in is what happens with these successes and whatever, they start to get known for them. So it becomes part of their identity. So I've done some work with the US military. I've done some work with uh, the Canadian Olympic team, um, entrepreneurs, mums. Um, and I've seen the same pattern arise where we, we over identify our, you know, who we are, our identity with the things that we do are the things that we're recognized in. And, and the, the, the greatest, most spectacular example of this is the U.S. military. And there's 22 U.S. military personnel a day committing suicide when they come out of the service. And I think, and I sat in the Pentagon and I brought this up, and it didn't get a lot of a lot of airplay because people didn't like the comment, but I was, take, took, I was taken aside by a very senior personnel staff who said I couldn't say it publicly in the meeting room, but you nailed it. And it's an identity crisis. And what happens in, in America, and don't get me wrong, I live in this country, I love this country, it's an amazing place to live, and I'm so grateful for being here. But I do believe there's a huge dysfunctionality with how people treat veterans here uh, that are in the military with their uniform. And I've spoken and interviewed many of them, and they agree with this. 
is they are seen as heroes. So when they take off their uniform, they're not like the entrepreneur selling their business or the mother waving goodbye to their children. The fall is twice as far for them because they don't just take off their uniform and lose their identity. They lose their hero status. And when they then hit the streets and try to assimilate into society, they don't know what to do. That's why when Wall Street went to shit a number of years ago and it goes to shit again in the future, so many people want to commit suicide because they've lost the essence of who they are and they've over-identified with the roles that they play. And that's a whole other conversation perhaps for another day, but that's something that's definitely prevalent. I actually wrote a short story in college about a guy who uh, got out of the military, couldn't figure out how to function in mainstream society, and then rejoined, like support his family, get a job, all the struggles that come with sort of life and, and making that adjustment. And so he went back in the military and then uh, runs out into the line of fire and gets shot so that his family can collect the insurance and he can uh, die a hero. And, wow. and so... Can I, can I just expand yeah. on this? And I've never shared this before. And as a part of me, was afraid to share this publicly, but I'm going to share this today for the first time. And so, so you, you were asking earlier on, so, okay, Grace, so what do you do with that situation? And how do you, and my, my absolute belief is we get to the core. We get to the core of what the real core issue is. And as it relates to the military, and again, I, you know, with respect, I'm an Irish man living in America. So I'm a, I feel I'm a visitor here in some respects, but I pour a lot of my heart and energy and I give back a tremendous amount of this country I work with in prisons, with, with in maximum security prisons. I work with military. I do my best to give back to this country as well. So I'm not here to preach and tell um, you know, people in America, what's going on. But this is my perspective. And sometimes when you're a bit of an outsider, you've lived most of your life somewhere else, you can just see things a little bit differently, not right or wrong, just differently. And one of the things that when you start to delve into the military personnel and you start to understand why they joined, there is a huge insight here. Like, why did you join the military? And what I have found is that many of them join because they simply don't know what else to do. Many have joined because they want the benefits, the health benefits and the education benefits for their family and friend. Many have joined because they want to follow in the footsteps of their parents. Okay, so that's three may, 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 really big reasons. And at one point or other, and I, and I spoke to these men and women, many of them, they joined out of a reaction, very much an anger reaction after 9-11. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but what I'm suggesting is a tiny, minute number joined because they truly wanted to join for themselves. And this was their dream and aspiration. In fact, I would, I, I don't know, statistically, I, I would be, it would be wrong of me to throw a guess in it, but I can tell you from all the interviews I've done, it was probably 5% of the people. And so to me, th that, that there's a, there's a challenge there. There's a flaw there is that they're going in for maybe reasons that are not necessarily tied to who they are. And the outcome is one where the way they get out the other end, they're assuming it's going to be different. And of course it's not. Yeah. I mean, the basis for the story that I wrote was a conversation I had with a, a close friend of mine who it was about the struggle of transitioning out. And then I wrote the story after being on an airplane with a guy who had got out of the military, was struggling to find a job, uh, was delivering pizzas, couldn't support his family. And so he rejoined so that he could, he could have some of that status back, even though he was likely going overseas and he was only going to see his children a couple months a year as opposed to, uh, I mean, this is during wartime, as opposed to on a daily basis. He felt, I mean, he wanted that status and he wanted to be seen in their eyes as 
as as a hero, right? And so um, not as somebody who can figure out how to make two ends meet. And uh, so I think a lot of what you're talking about is is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's it's definitely something that as a society or culture we, we should explore and, and delve deeper into because it's at the very least we owe it. We owe it to these people who serve us. Um, you talked a little bit about, about mindset and soul set. I mean, I, I feel like we're getting into a lot of sort of soul set type of things, but can you define those for us? I'm not sure I can define them in a very beautiful, descriptive, sure way, but I think, um, you know, our thoughts are our minds speaking to some extent and uh, our feelings are uh, how we feel emotionally is our soul's voice, if you like. Um, so to me, my on a very basic human level, I think, uh, you know, we I think depending on who you talk to, we use 10 percent of our minds. And um, the, the, the goal for many of us and the aspiration for many of us scientifically or otherwise is to start tapping in and using more of our brain. Uh, to me, a brain is simply a computer. It's a, it's a MacBook and we should use it accordingly. And I hope we do not expand our capacity to use our brain more because I think it actually is creating a devastating effect in society. And um, the science is coming out to prove that while um, there's great you know, strides to use more of our mind, the, 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 you know, the human psychology, what people want deep down is they want authenticity. They want to feel competent and good at what they do. And most of all, they want to connect with other human beings and they want to connect with themselves, which is often the thing we, we miss. So there's this huge conflict and dichotomy between mind and, and the drive to understand our mind and live more from there and this place of intuition, which is less tangible. I get that. I understand that. Um, so that's the best way I can describe it right now. And, um, you know, I've, I've dubbed this concept soul set. I've been writing about it. I wrote the dead man walking book and the essence of it is all about soul set. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to lean more into that. I'm going to create a framework so people can grasp it a little bit more, but in essence, it's, it's really about, you know, connecting more emotionally and intuitively, uh, with ourselves, with the people around us and the things that we want to do in this world. And I have yet to find an example of somebody who has trusted their intuition. Uh, I mean, a, a client of mine made up this great little saying, I'm sorry I listened to my gut, said no one ever. I want to talk a little bit about rich uh, on paper, poor in life. You discussed the importance of having good relationships with life and work, yourself, others. What are common signs that a person is suffering, whether it's in their work or themselves or with others, how do they recognize these things? Well, number one is that they desperately want a relationship in their life. What that tells me is that they're looking for an external relationship to try to mask or fill a gap that they have within their own souls. So to me, when I work with um, you know anybody who's, who's single who wants a relationship, the need in which are they, the urgency in which that relationship needs to show up or the need. So people might say, well, actually, I really, really want a relationship. Does that not show commitment and dedication and absolute, you know, desire? I go, yeah, and no, because it's, it's actually, you're, you're too attached to the outcome. So just as it relates to this conversation, trying to contextualize it a little bit, great if you can find somebody to, to, to journey this earth with that can enhance your experience on this earth. And I found that person in my wife, Pauline, but when someone desperately feels that they need someone in order to be happy, I would go as far as to say that is an internal thing that no person should either be asked to fill that gap or has the capacity to fill that gap. And I think what happens is we over rely on relationships to make us happy and therefore it doesn't work out because nobody can bear that burden. So one thing and there's, there's others, but one thing is 
Um, one thing is that is that you need somebody externally. Number two is that you keep changing from one career to the next, one passion to the next, assuming that that's the problem. I would ask you to look internally in the mirror. For me, I was I was jumping from this to that to this to that, assuming that the next summit would represent my happiness and fulfillment until I realized that it doesn't matter what I do externally, who I am at my core is the thing that I'm ignoring. And when I did that work, how I showed up in the world was different. So there's a couple. What were some, and we've talked about a lot of these, but like what, what were some of the things that you did to get to that point where you feel at peace with yourself? Yeah, I mean, I feel a lot more at peace. And I, again, I've, I, I want to caveat that with saying I have more, but I, I think the most important thing was letting go of the things that I knew at some level weren't serving me. Um, and again, I think this is this is a, an enormous point, uh, not because I'm saying it, but for people, it's a really important point is, and the analogy I use, let's just say somebody's living in Vegas and they hate Vegas. And I go, okay, great. So let's make a change. And they go, yeah, but I, I knew you were going to say that, Philip, but I just don't know where I want to live. I think it could be Phoenix. It could be New York. It could be, Amer you know, Afghanistan. I don't know. And I'm a huge advocate of executing and making a change on what you know, as opposed to what you do not know. So in other words, the, 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 the quote or the, the mantra that I live by in many respects when I'm unclear is in the absence of clarity, take action. In other words, it doesn't matter where you go, just pull the trigger, get on a flight and go anywhere outside of Vegas. And then people go, but hang on, what if I land in Seattle and I don't like it? I said, great, go back to the airport, fly somewhere else. We're so afraid to make decisions, to be seen to fail or make the, make the wrong move that we'd rather stay in the place. So my, my one thing I'm really good at, and you'll hear very, you'll hear rarely me ever say that, is I'm really good at taking action. So the thing that I think I'm most proud of is despite the fact that I was successful in so many ways, I didn't allow those so-called trappings, quote unquote, from our earliest, earlier dialogue. I executed knowing that I wasn't aligned without always the need to know what was next. In other words, the vamp, uh, the, 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 what was it? The, uh, the Vikings used to burn their ship when they got to land. They used to burn their ships because there was no going back. And I know some people would think that's irresponsible. I believe that that needs to be a real option. And I would, I would execute and leave jobs, leave businesses when I knew I wasn't aligned. And then the clarity and the opportunity would emerge for something new and something different that wouldn't have ordinarily emerged. Yeah, there's a, it takes a lot of bravery to do that, right? Because for so many people and for so many different aspects of our lives, we try to measure things and organize them and and control them and think them into submission and uh so that we have some level of predictability and it gives us like a i would argue and oftentimes a false sense of control and people get comfortable in that and, and what you're talking about is is stepping out of that into the chaos and uh, embracing it and having the bravery or faith that you'll figure it out when you're there yeah. And, I, and again, I, I really, you know, and I, and I know you won't, I'm sure you won't mind this again, is that I agree with you. Yes. And then in another way, here's the challenge with thinking. So for example, I moved from Ireland, the country I love to Canada, to North America, and then moved again two years ago to the United States. And people will say to me, God, wow, I've moved state and it almost took, kill me. The, the energy or the, 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 the worry or the fear. 
the, the courage it took. And I used to accept that because my ego wanted to hear that. My ego wanted to lap that shit up. And I used to tell myself, yeah, wow, I'm so courageous. But here's the problem. A lot, not, a lot of people don't feel they have that courage or they don't have it to the same extent as somebody else. And therefore, if we say things like leaving the job, leaving your business, leaving your city you don't like requires a ton of courage. That's a lot of courage that sometimes people don't feel they have, which I believe they do, by the way. I don't believe it takes a lot of courage to execute a move. That's the action. So putting out a new book is the action. Where the courage is required is having the balls to sit in, in, in your living room, sit in your bedroom, sit on the tiles of your shower and feel how disconnected you are and the cost of staying where you are for the rest of your life or for another five years. That's the immense courage. What you do to execute is just a byproduct of that. And I've really realized that, that when I look back to my move to North America, it wasn't getting on the plane and saying goodbye to my parents and all my friends and everything I knew, everything I knew. I wasn't leaving because I hated it. I wasn't leaving because the cops were chasing me. I wasn't leaving because the tax man was after me. I was leaving because I was disconnected from who I was and I felt right or wrong, I needed to leave everything I knew to find out who I really was. But the real courage was actually six or eight or 12 months before that where I had the courage to stop and say, is this it? Am I really going to be happy if I stay where I am for the rest of my life? That, that was the courage. And everybody has that in them. Everybody. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, but I also think about all the people who I know. Well, one, I don't want the idea of needing bravery or courage to inhibit somebody in the same way like it inhibits the the characters in The Wizard of Oz, right? Like they can't take that first step because they feel like it's an obstacle that they don't, they need to gain first. Um, yeah, I, I don't want that to happen, but I do think about all the people I know who have made life changing decisions, got, went down some road and then got scared while they were on that road and decided to turn back and go back to what they were doing because it was safe and comfortable and they gave up on their dream. And, and in those cases, like, I feel like there is sort of a necessity for a sense of ongoing faith or bravery or or even it's just like a willingness to just continue to face the challenges ahead. I, I'm thinking about a conversation. I had a buddy of mine. He talked about um, getting his girlfriend pregnant when he was when he was really young and now he's in his 50s. And, and I said, what did you do? What was your first reaction? He goes, fuck, man, I was terrified. I thought like, how am I going to feed this kid? And my dad told me, he's like, children feed themselves. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, as you're getting through life, you'll just figure out a way to do it. And like, you can't let the fear paralyze you. You'll just, you'll figure it out. And like, they just, even when you're, when you're going through your biggest challenges, you'll find a way to make sure that they're fed. And he goes, that's exactly what happened. And I think in life, sometimes we can let the idea of these, the things that we feel like we need inhibit us, like the Wizard of Oz example I used earlier. But um, sometimes just like being willing to show up and, continue to go but I also definitely see your point about the bravery that's involved early on and in doing the deep work and acknowledging that you need the change and, and making it it's like I feel like on some level it's just needed all the way through but um, again I don't want to inhibit people I think your answer is fascinating Philip I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit about your newest book uh, the one last talk why your truth matters and how to speak it and maybe tell me a little bit about where you came up with the idea for the book and what you came away with after writing it. 
Yeah, so basically, I became a little bit frustrated um, with the speaking industry as I traveled around the world, traveled around North America speaking. I observed a number of things. Uh, one was, uh, much to my dismay and almost disbelief and frustration, was many of the speakers that I would have looked up to are, you know, maybe slightly embarrassing uh, to admit this, but maybe that I'd want to be at some level many years ago when I got to meet them and share a stage with them. Um, they'd stand on stage, share their talks, their philosophies, their wisdom, their ways of living life, showing, you know, through the lens of their stories, how they made it, quote unquote. And um, and then I would meet them off stage and I'd find that often in many cases, they were very, very different people on and off the stage and um, which is something that they weren't being transparent with. So there was a kind of a disconnection between who they were, who they were pretending to be and who they really were in life which is fine. I just feel that the audience needs to see the truth and both sides of that story. So that was number one. Number two is the emergence of a lot of live events where speakers tend to be speaking to the audience and almost telling the audience how to live their life or showing them. And um, I felt that the greatest gurus in the world are the gurus are the audience sitting there. And then finally, a lack a lack of two-way dialogue. A lot of you know multi-speaker events where speaker after speaker would get up, share their, their, their talks, and then everyone would go home. And sometimes feeling more inadequate because feeling that, my God, if I have to try and implement all of these success strategies, where am I going to be? So I wanted to change that. I wanted to create an event where all of those things were turned on their heads and 90 to 90 at least percent of the speakers were everyday individuals in other words those audiences in those live events so basically we created a concept called one last talk where you have 15 minutes or less to stand on a stage and deliver the one last talk you'll ever give and the reason we picked one last talk was we wanted to focus the mind and open the heart and you have to share a part of your personal narrative a part part of your truth not speak about global warming politics, the health system, anything outside of you, you're not allowed to speak about it, it has to be a part of your personal narrative. And um, it's turned out to be an extraordinarily powerful venue and movement. And then obviously, we wrote the book to show anybody how, not just how to write the one last talk, that's easy, but actually why they should create the one last talk and how they'll understand themselves better by doing so free themselves and also help free humanity. Can you go into a little bit more depth into those last three things? Yeah, basically, I suppose the the number one is 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 you get this event where where basically the audience are encouraged to be the speakers in the future. Most of the people that stand on this stage, you get very famous soccer players and football players and business people. But 90 percent of the people that stand on the stage at one last talk are men and women who have never spoken publicly in their lives before and they get to share a part of their truth. So that alone, that experience um, where they get to craft their talk at a, at a, at a workshop in advance that whole cathartic, therapeutic, incredible personal journey is in itself one of the most powerful things people can do because it'll define who you are. Your one last talk will push you in ways to discover who you are and define who you are at a level that sometimes we just don't get to. So that's one of the biggest takeaways the speakers get. And then the relatability in the audience. The audience can't, with respect, relate to Richard Branson in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, because he owns an island. He has 85,000 staff. I've met Richard a number of times, and he's, he's, he's a great person. He's done great things for the world. But how many people can truly relate and walk away feeling inspired as opposed to inadequate around him where at one last talk, we feel that everybody on stage, you can relate to them at some level. That's absolutely awesome. What are some of the, the talks that were the most meaningful or profound or 
I mean, the ones that you connected to the most? I think one of the, the coolest, most bravest, most just beautiful stories was a guy called Chris, who, when I asked him to do his one last talk, he had a very similar response to many others. And he went, uh, are you, are you phoning the right person like me? Really? Uh, no, I'm not feeling it. I, I know lots of other people that, that could do it. And, um, his big concern was number one, like most people, we don't feel that we have a story worth telling. Ask me to speak about my, my, my passions. Ask me to speak about my widgets. Ask me to speak about, um, something that lies outside of me and I can come up with a million things I'd love to speak about or even two, even one, but ask me to share a part of my personal narrative. A lot of us don't feel either our story or our, our stories are complete or that they're concise or they're valuable enough. And for him, his big challenge was, listen, Philip, my life's in a mess. Like my life is not cool right now. And I said, how amazing would that be if you could take the stage and share your truth, not your story, your truth with the audience and not to have it wrapped in a bow? Because a lot of speakers want to make an impact, as we talked about before, but they want to look good doing it. And that's one of the biggest challenges is can you show up and just give value? And the, the big invitation behind the scenes to the speakers is it's not about you. The story is about you, but it's not for you. You're doing it for the audience. And what was great is he eventually stood up on stage three months later and the name of his talk was Everything is Awesome, Not. And he just talked, he didn't download, he wasn't bitching and complaining. He just talked about how he fell off the path, how he got misled in his journey, how he made poor decisions, how he didn't trust his gut and he was chasing money and all this. And he didn't wrap it in a bow at the end. And he got this standing ovation and people come up to him and oh my God, thank you so much for having the courage to admit that your life is not great. Because you know what? Mine isn't either. And they were in awe of the fact that they knew in that moment they weren't alone, where a lot of speakers tell you the great stories, the good stories about themselves because they want to look good. And some ways that inspires people, but in other ways it just makes people feel inadequate. I'm going to Vegas tomorrow and in two days time I'm speaking and I'm opening up with the most humiliating story of my entire life. And I'm doing that not because I'm looking for people to feel sorry for me. I'm doing it because I want to share. I'm ready to share it. I'm ready to let it go in the world. And number two is I want people to know that I'm as human as they are and that I have my own unique individual insecurities and everything else to go with it, as opposed to standing there telling a story that makes me look good. I, I think this is absolutely awesome. I'm going to wrap this up. I have one more question or one more sort of set of questions. Uh, one of the things that's become very clear through the course of this interview is that you found something in your life that's meaningful and you've shared it with the world. And for somebody who's listening to this and they're looking for to discover their truth they want to speak it they want to they want to find that thing that's going to make them feel worthy and alive what do you suggest to them and how has doing that affected your life i mean whether it's your well-being your mental health your physiology like how has it affected your health wow i don't think i i don't think i can even answer that i think that is such an enormous profound question and consideration for me. I don't know. All I am I feeling, my intuition is telling me that it's probably saved my life. Um I feel it's 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 had an enormous I have more energy now than I ever had. I and I'm gonna share something that sounds might sound so so weird or so even arrogant, but 
I was at home recently in, in Ireland. Ireland will always be a home uh, at some level spiritually for me. And I played a game, a sports game, uh, you know, a very ancient uh, five, four, maybe four or five thousand year old sport called hurling. Uh, hurling in America is very different, but hurling in Ireland is a sport, an incredible sport. And I, I'm not very, I, never, I didn't grow up playing this, but I went to this, just this, I brought these clients and we had this really fun day. And the guy said to me, my God, you're fitter now than you were seven, eight years ago when we started doing these sessions with your clients. And I said, I feel fitter. And he said, you also look younger. Now, if you look at photographs of me years ago, I don't look particularly happy. I don't look particularly healthy. I'm not saying I'm, 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 I'm the greatest human male specimen in the world right now, but I feel really good. And I think it's down to, yeah, I look after myself physically. I do quite a bit of working out. I eat pretty well. But it's because I'm doing something I love. And I think I don't know how to answer that, quite frankly. Um, but to me, I think, you know, speaking our truth, understanding, you know, who we are at the core. I'm a huge advocate that everybody has an immense amount of wisdom and and truth inside of them and that they've got a lot more power as it relates to connecting and helping other people than they can imagine. But here's one thing I have found to be absolutely fact is that. So many of us are walking this earth looking for our passions, looking to find out and discover who we are going to be when we grow up. And what I have found to be true, and this may make sense, and hopefully it does, is that our greatest gift lies right next to our deepest wound. And therefore, if we are designed to protect ourselves, doesn't it make some kind of sense that that's part of the reason that most of humanity never uncovers their gift or their passions or finds out what they want to do when they grow up? We're looking for it in the wrong places. And I have found that actually as I have leaned into the most painful parts of my life, who I am and what I'm here to do shows up as a result of that. It's a byproduct of that. In essence, if I had to sum up what I do, is I'm basically trying to either remove the pain that I myself experienced sooner in the journey for others. I took me many years to find my gift. I stumbled, I fell, I fell flat in my face. Some of that people need to experience, truly need to experience. However, I'm doing the work that I feel accelerates the process for others, the work that I didn't necessarily have in totality myself. And I think that's available to all of us, but your greatest gift lies right next to your deepest wound. And yet most people don't feel there's any rationale in uncovering our pain in order to discover who we are. And to me, unless you do that, you never will discover. And that's the whole essence of the One Last Talk movement and the One Last Talk book. It's all about that. It's all about leaning into the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, embarrassed about, and we don't want the world to see. And until we release them, we're partly hiding from the world and our gifts and our pain both hide in the same box. Philip, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And if you're listening, you want to learn more about Philip and everything he does, I'm going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of the podcast so that you can learn about him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, 
go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.